At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed, have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters five through seven to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. Romans 7, 6, 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace by no means? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, we are thankful, as we just proclaimed, that we get to be your children in Christ Jesus, and that this morning, as your children, as your sons and daughters gathered as your family, we get to come to once again encounter and hear your word. So speak to us, Father, by your spirit, through your word, to magnify your son. God, I want to specifically pray that through this time, you would do a work of freedom in our hearts and lives. So we submit ourselves to you. We ask that you would move in the power of your spirit in this moment. Let every single person this morning know that they've encountered the living God because we have encountered your word. We love you. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Uh, one of the things that um, I never really did as a parent, and you can judge me for it, is I never pretended with my kids that Santa Claus was real. I'm sorry if I burst that bubble for any of you this morning. Um, but uh, it was just one of those things as a parent, for whatever reason, I never could do. And so from the time my kids were really little, we always explained to them that Santa is a fantastic story, uh, but... It's a fun to celebrate at Christmas, but it wasn't real. Now, my youngest son, Xavier, he had a really, really hard time accepting that when he was a little kid. And so we had lots of conversations. He loved Santa. He was all about Santa when he was younger. And we had lots of conversations explaining him the goodness of Santa, but that that wasn't necessarily based in reality. But he didn't care. Like, in his mind, Santa was real, and he would, he would argue with us all the time when he was little. We'd be like, no, it's a great story. And he was like, no, no, it's not. Santa's real. Because for him, 
the reality of that story was so encompassing and so much better in his mind than what the truth was that he was happy. He was happy to kind of dwell in that story and in that narrative. And so no matter what you told him, he just was not going to be convinced. One of the things I learned through that with him is that I think as human beings, we're really good at deceiving ourselves. That we're really good at telling ourselves stories and myths, even when at times the truth runs counter to it. We can convince ourselves, and we live in that place, right? Like some of us are still convincing ourselves that diet soda is better than regular soda. We're happy to just continue to adopt that narrative, right? And we find these little things that we just kind of latch onto, and we go, no, whatever says contrary, I'm going to hold on, because that myth, that idea is better than what reality is. I think one of the great myths that we are perfectly happy to continue to pretend is true is that you and I are spiritual free agents, I think most people in our world adopt the idea that our lives, our eternity, our spirituality, the kind of non-material parts of us that make us up as human beings are basically good, they're morally neutral, and that we in fact are completely free. That no one and nothing really truly masters us. And we live life free, making our own choices. Certainly, maybe circumstances influence those things at times. But at our core, we are basically free. But when you look through the pages of Scripture, you begin to realize that this is a myth. It's a pretend fairy tale, as much as the truth is that Santa lives at the North Pole and delivers presents to every child on Christmas. You see, the great truth that we encounter in this passage and that we see throughout the pages of Scripture is actually the exact opposite, that we are not morally free. We are not spiritual free agents, but in fact, we are all enslaved spiritually. In fact, what I want to unpack from our passage today and what I think Paul points us towards in this section of Romans is the reality is that everyone is a slave, but only Christians are free. Now, that's a loaded phrase. I get it. Especially in our current climate and culture, that's a completely loaded phrase and idea. But I also think there's an important truth in what Paul points us towards in that passage. So if that idea bothers you a bit, I'm just going to kind of ask you to hold your offense for a moment, and I want to kind of unpack why Paul points us and uses this kind of metaphor and narrative to help us understand our spiritual state. So let's kind of jump into the text this morning and we'll kind of begin to see what Paul wants to teach us. Paul begins in Romans 6.15, he says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? This question that Paul brings at the forefront of our text this morning is actually built out of a previous point that he's been making in his argument in the book of Romans. 
So we've been in this series, Newish, where we've been looking at Romans 5 through 7, where Paul unpacks the reality of what the gospel means for our lives, that in Jesus, God has made us entirely new, but we live in a world of sinfulness. And so we all find ourselves in a struggle between the new creation that comes in Christ and yet the draw back towards sin. And Paul wants to encourage us to move and to live in that new life that God has purchased for us. And so he lays out that reality in Romans 5. He begins by reminding us we're justified by faith, declared righteous. We now live under the reign of Jesus instead of the reign of Adam. And then Paul begins in Romans 6 to unpack some objections because one of the things he lays out is that in the gospel, God pours out radical grace upon us, so much so that when we sin and struggle, God's grace actually superabounds over that. And naturally, the objection comes to Paul, well, if God's grace covers our sin, then why don't we just keep on sinning? And in the first half of Romans 6, Paul essentially unpacks and saying, no, don't keep on sinning, because when you trusted in Christ, you died with him to sin. You have a new life, and you should live that new life. He actually sums up that whole argument in verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Grace now marks your life. But naturally, this raises another objection. You can almost feel it coming. But wait, Paul, if we're under grace and we're not under law, then what keeps us from just doing whatever we want? Like, what actually provides the boundaries so we don't just go chaotic and just continue to roll into sin? Shouldn't we just continue to sin if we're not under law? Can't we just live however we want? A couple weeks ago, I used the analogy... If you remember the thought experiment in exploring this idea, I said, imagine if you, that there was a new program that came out where Michigan essentially said, if you signed up for this program, they would cover every single traffic fine that you would ever incur in your entire life. And we all said, yes, please, can that be true? Right? Because we want that freedom. But naturally, the question that begins to flow out of that reality is, well, what, what does that mean? Like, if that's, doesn't that essentially make the law and traffic laws mute and void? Won't it just dissolve into chaos? What actually keeps us in the boundaries and helps us to actually live and drive the way we should? That's essentially the same idea. Wait, if we're not under law anymore, we're under grace, well, then maybe we should just live however we want. Does it even matter? Well, Paul gives us his emphatic response, right? In verse 15, you see it, by no means. It's a phrase he uses throughout the book of Romans. And I told you before, the original Greek is the phrase meganoita. So if you want a little trick to remember, what Paul's essentially saying is mega no. Like no way should that be your conclusion. That because you're not under law, you should just live however you want. But why, Paul? Why shouldn't I just live however I want? Well, here's where Paul unpacks his big idea for us in verse 16. Look what he says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So Paul begins to draw on a really a familiar societal metaphor to help them understand why they shouldn't live this way. It would have been familiar for most of his audience, as Paul writes to Rome. Because in the Roman world, about a third of the population were slaves. Now remember, just for clarification as we, as we unpack this, ancient slavery is not the same as what took place in transatlantic slavery. 
Slavery in the ancient world wasn't based on race. It was based on debt and often prisoners of war. Now, so as the Roman Empire went and conquered more and more lands, they brought more and more people under slavery. Now, that doesn't mean it's okay by any means. So I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to excuse it. What I'm trying to help you understand is that just the context that Paul's writing into. And the New Testament never gives an endorsement of slavery. If anything, it seeks to actually undermine the institution itself. And you're actually going to see that in the text later. But nonetheless, it would have been familiar to his audience. And so Paul's going to draw on it as a metaphor to help them understand their spiritual reality. And what he wants them to understand is that every one of us is a slave. For Paul, the issue of slavery highlights an important spiritual reality, which is, whose reign are we under? Essentially, who is our master spiritually? And do we live in, who do we obey under that? Right? That's why he says, to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. The question for Paul of obedience comes down to the question of highlighting our spiritual reality. The difference in Paul's day from someone who was a slave and someone who wasn't a slave was if they had a master whom they were bound to in obedience and whether they were not. And what Paul wants to highlight is that every one of us is bound to a master and are moved towards obedience. The thing we offer our obedience and allegiance to, in effect, becomes the one to whom we are enslaved spiritually. And for Paul, there's really only two options, and he lays them out right at the beginning. The first is that we can be enslaved to sin. And this is the plight of all human beings that we are born into. That we, in fact, come under the slavery of sin and death. Sin becomes our master such that even the good things that we do are tainted with sin. That's why Paul would say earlier in Romans, no one does good. No one. Because when we're under sin, we're slain, we're tainted by sin. And Paul reminds us at the end of Ephesians 5, the idea he's unpacking here, that all of us are born, if we are not in Jesus, we are born under Adam. And because we are born under Adam, we are brought into slavery of sin. This is the reality of all human beings. Let's be clear. This is, this is how Paul sees it. He divides up the category. If you are not in Christ Jesus, you are enslaved to sin. Doesn't matter what religion you are, doesn't matter what worldview you hold, doesn't matter what culture you come from, doesn't matter what philosophy you have, doesn't matter how you live. For Paul, if you are not in Jesus, then you are enslaved and under the masterhood of sin. And sin ultimately leads to death. Not just physical death, not even just spiritual death, although that's certainly true, but it leads to the corruption of all of God's good creation. That death is what is opposed to God and destroys the life that God designed for creation. And if you are under sin, then it leads to that sort of death, to a whole system that destroys our lives, our eternity, and God's good world. The other option then, though, for Paul is that we can be slaves to God. That essentially the other place and other master that we are bound to is that we are bound to God through obedience, which leads to righteousness, which means we submit ourselves under God. And this leads to goodness and to life. And essentially, Paul wants to lay out for us the reason that you shouldn't continue to sin is because you're not under sin anymore. You're under Jesus. He wants to ask the question, who are you ultimately bound to? This idea of 
essentially sin resulting in slavery is not an idea just for Paul. Jesus actually taught this same idea. If you look at John chapter 8, and if you have a Bible, you can go there, you can see that Jesus unpacks the same spiritual truth for us. He's in a conversation at the temple, and he says in John 8, 31, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they, the Jews that were with him, answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, that's a really ironic statement. Right? You're talking about a culture and people who served as slaves in Egypt for 400 years before God set them free and brought them to the promised land. So it becomes the height of arrogance that now, in the face of what Jesus says, they're like, well, we've never been enslaved to anyone. I'm like, have you read the back half of the book? Like, I think you missed something here. But nonetheless, Jesus continues. He says, truly, truly. So here's his emphasis. I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. They are bound to sin, and they obey its call. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus essentially says, you don't have privilege. If you sin, you're a slave to sin. And because you're a slave, at some point you're removed from the father's house. Only the son gets to remain in the house. But if you're in the son, then you're free. Whoever's in the son is free indeed. And so Jesus highlights that there's a slavery that we're under, but there's also a freedom that is offered. And that's essentially what Paul moves to in Romans chapter 6. That's why he says in verse 17, if you go back to Romans, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So yes, everyone is a slave, but only Christians are free. That if you are in the Son, then you experience spiritual freedom. That's why Paul begins this phrase with just this moment of thanksgiving. Thank you, God. Why? Because you have been set free in Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, if you've put your faith in him, you have been freed. Paul says, you were once under a sin. And he uses that verb, he uses an imperfect verb, which is this continual past action. Essentially, he highlights to say, before Jesus, your entire life was marked by slavery to sin. But you became obedient to the heart, meaning God did a work in you that transferred you from that place into a place of freedom. God did an action in the past that changed you. Right? We refer to this as the new birth or regeneration. That there was a moment, if you're in Jesus, that you were under sin, but you put your faith in him, and God regenerated you. He gave you a completely new heart so you could trust in Jesus and you could experience freedom from that sin. And Paul says that's a reason to celebrate. At its core, Christianity is never a message about outward conformity to rules. It's a message that God, by his grace, does a work that transforms our hearts from the inside out. That's why Paul says you became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What he's using in that phrase is the reality, the standard of teaching is the gospel, the good news that Jesus is king that by his death and resurrection, he has made God's kingdom available and is establishing it on the earth both now and for eternity. We now no longer live under the law, but we live under the reign of Christ. 
And when we trust in Christ, God transforms our hearts such that we long to obey Jesus, to follow him. Right? This is why Jesus would remind us of what it means to be conformed to his standard of teaching. That if you love me, he says in John 14, you will keep my commandments. Or John 10 where he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Those that have put their faith in Jesus have had their hearts changed where they long to begin to learn to imitate his beliefs and behaviors based on his word. That faith, in essence, is discipleship. It's learning to believe in and become like Jesus in all of life. That that is what happens. It's a change of heart that makes us want to follow Jesus. And because of that, we've become free from sin. You've been brought into a place of freedom. And you now are obedient and under a new king, King Jesus. You submit under him. And that doesn't result in death, but life and joy. And that's what Paul means. Yeah, everyone is a slave, but only Christians in Jesus are truly free because they've learned the new and better way of eternal life. You see, it's one thing to obey rules from outward conformity. It's another thing to learn to obey them from the heart. When we adopted our daughter, she was 17 at the time. So she had grown up for 16, 17 years of her life under a different set of rules for her household. And then when we adopted her and brought into our family, that came with it a whole other set of rules because we were with her parent. We were her parents now, right? And, and naturally, there was some tension of her learning what it meant to live under our rules and under our house and under those sorts of things. And we saw some of that tension and that struggle. But what I'm reminded of through that process was what changed for my daughter, imagine with me for a moment if I had gone to my daughter before we adopted her and I said, hey, here's a whole new set of rules that you need to follow. Like, you need to be home before midnight, you need to go to school every day, you need to do your homework, no boys in your room, like here's all the rules, right? Like, what do you think her response is? Like, who are you? Like, what? tell me how to live, I'll do what I want. But what was her response when she came into our house? Yeah, there was some tension, but over time she learned to understand that these rules were rules of love. That we did this not because we were like jerk parents trying to ruin her life, even though she might have felt that sometimes, but that really this was because we loved her. We wanted what's best for her. And even now as she's gotten older, she's expressed at times and come back and said like, yeah, I get it. I get why you, why you established that. You see, once she recognized that the rules were out of love, that obedience starts to emerge from a different place. It's not like, oh, my parents are a drag, so I just want to, who are trying to bum my life out. It's like, oh no, they love me. Maybe I should listen and obey them. And that's essentially what Paul's saying. Like, before Jesus, the rules are a drag, but when you come to see Jesus, how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, that he's not trying to lead you to a path of death, he's trying to bring you to a place of life, and you experience that inner transformation of the heart, Man, the rules don't become a drag. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. Don't hear me. We struggle, but a genuine changed heart will say, yes, I want to learn how to live in the freedom of Jesus, to learn his way of life. And Jesus didn't give us a whole bunch of rules. He summed it all up in two, love God and love others. And to learn to live that way is to experience freedom. 
But what does it look like for us to actually live that way and to live free? What, what is Paul trying to get at here? How do we know if we're slaves to sin or slaves to God, who our master is and who we're obedient toward? Well, Paul essentially gives us three things to point us towards to help us kind of evaluate our own lives and see, are we living under the reign of sin or are we living under the reign of Jesus? Now, he gives a little caveat at the beginning of 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And what Paul's trying to say that is, listen, I'm using this metaphor not to endorse slavery. I'm using this metaphor to help you try to understand the reality of your spiritual life. And so don't hear him saying, oh, this is what's good. Hear him saying, hey, I'm just using this as a picture so you can understand it. And then he goes on to give us really three ways that we can evaluate. And and I want to kind of sum those up in three questions this morning to help us kind of think through what Paul presents us for us. The first one comes right away in 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. The first question I think we should ask that Paul points us towards is, who do you obey in your life? Paul essentially draws a contrast. And he says, just as you presented your members, that means your actions, your life, the way in which you live, that's what he uses. He says, just as you did that before in sin, now present those to God in righteousness. You see, for Paul, what he wants to recognize is that when we present our lives to sin, when we obey sin's call over the call of Christ, that it results in more and more sin. And that's what leads towards destruction. And so Paul wants to warn us, do not obey sin. Don't follow its call. Don't make it your master. You've been set free from that. Right, and we know this. When we stop and think about it for a minute, the reality of sin is such that when we present our lives to sin, to impurity, what Paul calls us here, it results in lawlessness, which only results in more lawlessness. It only gets worse. It doesn't get better. When we're slaves to sin and we make that our master, it just leads to more and more destruction. Right, when we see people that are under sin, we see this pattern that follows, right? I've never met someone with a critical spirit who at some point just says, I've had enough criticism. No, they like always find the next thing to be critical about. I've never ministered to someone who's addicted to porn, who at some point found enough satisfaction in it that they were like, oh, I'm good. I've never met an alcoholic where one drink is enough. And I've never met a workaholic where one hour of overtime is enough. Sin and impurity breeds more sin. And this is what destroys us. And so when we submit ourselves even to the smallest parts of sin in our lives, what Paul says, when we give it that space and room, when we come under its obedience, man, that spiral can start quick. And I've been in that spiral. I know the destruction that comes. And it's why Paul says, don't obey sin's call. Follow God. Submit your life and the parts of your life totally and completely to righteousness. Because righteousness leads to sanctification. It leads to holiness, to living the way God wants. Part of the work of our lives 
in walking in freedom is learning to follow God's example, to learn his way of life. That's what sanctification is, to increase in being holy as God is holy in and through Jesus. To let all of our lives come under obedience to Christ. To learn how to live in such a way where our whole life is marked by God's ways and not sin's ways. What Paul says here is, man, learn not to submit yourself to lust, but to intimacy and committed relationship. Learn not to be controlled by alcohol, but by the Spirit. Learn to work from rest and acceptance, not for rest and acceptance. And learn not to look at the world with criticism, but with openness and wonder and joy. The work of sanctification is ongoing, and it happens as we learn to submit our lives under Christ. But the question Paul forces us to ask is, are we obeying Jesus? Is he controlling our day-to-day life, or are there areas of life that we're continuing to submit under sin? Because if we are, it will continue to destroy us. The second question then Paul wants us to ask is, not only who do you obey, but what fruit do you reap? Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Paul wants to know, what fruit is your life reaping? Because if you are under sin, then your life, yes, you will be free, as Paul says, from the requirements of righteousness. You can live however you want, do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, what we recognize is that only results in more sin and deeper shame. And at the end, death. Not just physical death, but even death within our lives now and on into eternity. Certainly, we can live in a way in which we live free from the restraints of God's kingdom. But Paul wants to ask, what fruit does that bear in your life? Because the fruit of the kingdom will bear holiness. And holiness will lead to life, to flourishing. Because that's how God set it up to be. In many ways, Paul's asking the question, right? Will you follow and live under God's boundaries that result to life? Or will you reject God's boundaries, which ultimately results in death? In many ways, I think Paul's pointing towards us and hearkening back to what we see even at the very beginning. Right? Remember, God created the world good for humans to flourish. The Bible uses the word shalom. It's the idea that we live in peace and harmony with one another, with God, with ourselves, with all of creation. That this is how God set it up to be. And he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And God only gave one boundary in the very beginning. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you know the story, Genesis 3, the serpent comes to tempt those first human beings. And look how he tempts them. Genesis 3, 2. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Right, so here's the tempt zone. Did God really set that boundary? Is that really true? Do you really need to follow it? And then he says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That idea of knowing is the idea of determining. You will be the one who will set what is good and evil like God does. You see, the temptation that comes 
is to say, don't live by God's boundaries. Set your own boundaries. Because that's what real freedom is. Right? That, that's the narrative that surrounds us. If you look up freedom in the dictionary, you get definitions like freedom is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. And that's what we think life should be. I get to determine my life. I get to decide. I set the boundaries. Yet God's definition is that God has defined freedom as being able to live and love and flourish within the protection of his boundaries because he knows what's best. And yet the temptation comes to say, well, don't follow God's boundaries, set your own. But look what happens in the story, right? Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband who was with her and ate. She sets her own boundaries. And then the text says in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And shame enters the story. Brokenness comes in. And the reality is that when we set our own boundaries and fail to follow God's boundaries, we reap the fruit of destruction. We see it hurt our lives now and on into eternity. And yet, today, our culture is clamoring for the world's definition of freedom. We think we should have the right to set the boundaries. So it doesn't matter how God created me, I determine my identity. It doesn't matter how God designed sexual intimacy, I determine sexual intimacy with whom I want. It doesn't matter how God set for us to live in a certain way in relationship to him, each other, and the world. I get to determine that. And forget you, I'll do what I want. And then we wonder why our world, everywhere we look, is spinning into chaos and destruction and why we're hopeless. And no matter what we have, no matter what technology we pursue, no matter what resources we have, we can't move the ball forward at all. Because sin results in death. It always does. When we determine our own boundaries, we bear the fruit of destruction. And we can kid ourselves for a while, but you know that's where the end is. But Paul wants to remind you, if you're in Christ, you're free from that. I think it's amazing what God offers to humanity before sin ever enters the picture. Flourishing, life, everything that we want in perfect harmony. This is the world that we desire. And what is offered in Christ is that reality again. That when we trust in Christ, we come under his freedom. We can begin to experience that reality in our lives. And so the question that Paul wants to say is, what fruit is your life reaping? Is it reaping sin and patterns of destruction or is it reaping holiness? and flourishing in life. And then Paul asked the final question. In one of the great verses of Scripture in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The question we have to wrestle with is what destiny awaits you? Paul's not making a judgment here. He's just making an observation. That if you are under sin, if sin is your master, it will pay you wages, but the wages it will pay is death. Death now and death for eternity when you are separated from God forever. But in Christ, there's a whole different hope. The destiny that's offered is life, eternal life. 
And notice the parallelism here, parallelism here that Paul draws in verse 23. You have two masters, sin or God. Which one will you submit under? One offers you wages, what you earn. One offers you a gift, something you can't earn, something you can't purchase, something that's purchased for you. One results in death, the other in life. And what Paul reminds us is there's only two options for life. Everyone's a slave. The question is, are you a slave under sin that results in death, or are you a slave under God that results in life? I've always loved the C.S. Lewis quote from his great divorce where he says there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. You see, the reality is we have a choice of who our master will be. Will we continue in the vein of sin and what we know, or will we embrace the offer that God gives us in Jesus, the free gift of life and eternally, we submit under him as our king, trust in his death for our sins and his resurrection for our new life. And that's a question we face in our lives and a question yet we face daily. Who will we submit under? You see, the myth has been lifted. There's no Santa Claus. You're not a morally neutral agent. You're either under sin or you are under Christ. We're all slaves. The question is, who are you bound to? Because when you submit under Christ, you get life eternal. You get freed from a horrible taskmaster. You know, for all the joy that we put in him, Santa's not really the greatest master, is he? Like, who wants to live double-checking everything they do, hoping you make the nice list? Maybe I can do just enough things. You see, when we begin to recognize the story and embrace reality, we begin to see that the joy of Christmas comes when people that love you unconditionally provide what is good for you. And when we free ourselves from the myth that we're just okay, that we're morally neutral and free, what we come to discover is that there is a God who recognizes us in our brokenness, that he doesn't offer to us a way in which we have to earn his affection or his love or his life, that what he offers to us is freedom. What he offers to us is payment for our sins. What he offers to us is life eternal. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's freedom. That's flourishing. That's what you were made for. And the question we all have to wrestle with is, are you going to continue to be bound to sin or are you going to be bound Jesus. For some of you this morning, that's a question you need to ask of your whole life because you have never put your faith in Jesus and experienced the freedom that comes of making him the Lord of your life and trusting in his death for your sins and the resurrection that gives you new life. 
And if you're not in Jesus this morning, I want to implore you, trust him. His way is the best way. But if you're in Christ this morning, sometimes we can have a tendency to want to go back to our old ways and our old master. And I think what Paul implores us this morning is no, no. Maybe you come in this morning and there's a part of your life that you know is under the reign of sin, that you continue to submit that part time and time and time again. What Paul wants to remind you this morning is if you're in Jesus, you're free. You don't have to continue that pattern. Turn from that place and submit that part of your life to Jesus. Experience his mercy and forgiveness afresh and learn to walk in righteousness and holiness. That's what sanctification and discipleship is. God doesn't stand here in judgment over you. If you're in Christ, he stands here loving you and welcoming you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. God's not up here like, ah, I hope you get it right. And if you don't, no, he looks at you and he says, and I've already set you free. I've already done what you couldn't do. Now just continue to learn my ways and to walk in it. And this morning, I just want to invite you for a minute. We're just going to have a moment. I want to kind of invite you to a moment of reflection. So if you would, I'm going to just invite you to kind of bow your head and close your eyes for a second. Just to kind of have some personal space. And I just want to ask the Holy Spirit right now to come. And to reveal in each one of our hearts, what's the area of my life that isn't submitted under the reign of Christ? And this is a work we all have to do. Just a few weeks ago, I was convicted about a Mary in my life where I was not submitted under the lordship of Jesus. And I had to come afresh in repentance to God and say, I'm sorry, teach me again to walk in your freedom and your way of life. So just ask the Spirit to quietly reveal that to you. So I'm just going to have 30 seconds of silence and then I'm going to pray for us in a moment. So. God, thank you that you're just at work right now in each one of our hearts, revealing to us those areas that we still want to submit under our old master. But we're thankful, God, that what you offer to us this morning is true freedom. In that area of our life that we struggle with, maybe in that whole aspect of our life that we've never surrendered to you. What you offer to us is grace and forgiveness and freedom this morning. Thank you for the truth that we don't have to earn that. That's something we just receive through faith in Jesus Christ. So I pray right now over my brothers and sisters in this place, I I pray, God, that you would begin to move to remind us afresh of the gospel. To bring us to the truth that in Jesus we truly are free from sin. 
that in Jesus, we truly have been made sons and daughters. That in Jesus, there is forgiveness for every mistake. That in Jesus, there is life eternal. Even as we prepare to just receive communion, would you speak afresh the gospel over our hearts and let us lead us to that place of repentance, the turning from our sin and turning to you. So continue to work through this time. We just offer it to you. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.